picking a arbitrary goal time is a sort of reverse engineering that doesn't work in training because you can't, you're not like this robot who you can input. I want to run a nine minute mile pace, which is what roughly you would want for a sub four hour marathon and say, I want to run a nine minute pace. So I'm just going to make my body run that. Unfortunately, training doesn't work that way. If it did, people would probably be a lot faster and someone would have broken two or something or officially broken too. I know it's been broken unofficially. <laughs> so a lot of times people see these numbers and they're nice round numbers or there's some sort of excitement around them like, oh, breaking four seems like a big barrier, but you just can't program a number into your body. It's all dependent upon where your current fitness is. If you're an avid runner and looking for help to understand the science, simplify the complicated and remove hurdles so that your next run is not only fun and fulfilling, but also fuels you with passion and purpose, then you're in the right place. Runner Click presents The Passionate Runner with your host, me, Whitney Hines. Hi, and welcome to episode 49 of Runner Click's The Passionate Runner podcast. I am your host, Whitney Hines. I'm a lifelong runner, a certified running coach, and founder of TheMotherRunners.com, a resource for moms who run. And right now, we are doing something a little different. In As we celebrate our two-year anniversary of the podcast, we are re-airing some of our most popular episodes. If you are new to the show, then I think you will really appreciate the experiences and expertise that we are about to share. And if you've already heard this episode, if you're like me, chances are you probably forgot a lot about it. And so you are going to be newly inspired and informed. So I can't wait for you to hear my conversation. If you are an avid runner and looking for help to understand the science, simplify the complicated and remove hurdles so that your next run is not only fun and fulfilling, but also fuels you with passion and purpose, then you are in the right place. RunnerClick presents The Passionate Runner with your host, Whitney Hines. Always, it's great to see your face. Of course, thank you so much for having me, Whitney. It's always exciting to touch base with you and to be on again on the podcast. Yeah, you're my first repeat guest because I predict, since we're going to be talking about predictions, I predict that your name is going to be up there with like Steve Magnus and the Roaches. And you're like, oh, Whitney, stop. No, but you are <laughs> like, I'm just waiting when you're done with school. I'm waiting for you to like publish your dissertation or whatever. And <laughs> When I'm done with school, I'm ready to like take a nap. Right, yeah. The whole weekend. (laughs) Well, you have to do the dissertation anyways, right? So, you know. Yeah, I think so. You know, I have a, like for the master's, you can usually have like a thesis to finish off, or at least for my first one. But I honestly don't know. I know we have a capstone project to wrap up, but I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, if it's going to be like research driven or a more like practical thing, because like applied exercise science is an interesting degree because it's a lot of theoretical, but it's also a lot of that applied practical part and learning to like work with people in exercise. So, so is it, be interesting to see. do you choose between a capstone project or a thesis, which could then be used for a dissertation? I think it's like for the capstone project, you can do a thesis or you can do something more practical, which I don't know what that would look like. But one of the things they mentioned was a journal article, which would be based on a thesis. So we'll see. It's I do that in January oh. and wrap that up then in February, which is a pretty short duration. Yeah. yeah. And then if I was to go on to a PhD, then I'd be getting into a bigger dissertation. But graduate school is a lot of work and <laughs> it's time to not be in school. Right. I mean, not to mention that you have your own business. You have like over a mm-hmm. hundred athletes that you're coaching. You have a family. You're training for CIM as well. You sort of have a lot going on. Yeah, just a little. And like my husband is a very bright engineer and he has a lot of professional demands and professional goals also. And it's his time to pursue some things after I wrap up my master. So we're all very ready to wrap it up. It's been a very enjoyable experience getting to delve into stuff more and get the tools to better interpret and apply science in exercise. And I love that you guys have talked about that and you're passing the baton on to him. 
Thank you. Yeah, he sits his PE in January, which is like a big deal for engineers. If there's any engineers listening, so it's a bigger deal than anything I will ever do. Oh, what does PE stand yeah. for? Professional engineering oh, okay. license. So, which is not very common for mechanical engineers. So it's a really like civils have to have it. Mechanical engineers, it's harder to get, and it's a really big deal. But he's working on a lot of really big deal stuff. So. Awesome. Well, that's exciting. This mm-hmm. move, I mean, last time we talked to you, you were in Indiana. So a lot has changed. You're now in Colorado yeah. and loving yes, it. Yeah, in Boulder County. Yes, we love it here. It's autumn right now and it's almost like its own little ecosystem. Like everything turns such a vibrant yellow. And I know, pe- like, no offense to people in New England. I know people always go on about New England Falls, but Colorado Falls are just stunning because there's already some snow on the mountains. There's these bright yellow aspens everywhere and it is the perfect weather outside. Oh my gosh. That sounds amazing. I love aspens. We're big tree people. The Heinz family, we're big tree people and I love aspens. They're so beautiful. They are so beautiful. Oh, and how is CIM training going? Are you, is it like you're running it for fun or you're training to get a good time? Yeah, you know, I would like to do the best I could possibly do for the day. I don't know if that will be a PR or not. But I've been putting in like not as intense training as I did before, but when I say that, it's like the difference of like three to five miles a week oh, compared okay. to what I was doing before. Yeah. So I have to remind myself it's negligible. So, you know, I'd like to have a good time and I've like rationed with myself that it might be probably my second slowest marathon, but that's because all my other marathons are actually grouped pretty closely together, all right around like 329 to 331. So I told myself if it's like a 340 or 335, that's okay. That's still a good day. That all said, it'll be my first time racing after spending a full year at high altitude. I've never, I haven't gone down to sea level since we moved to Boulder. And I just had my hemoglobin and veritin and hematocrit tested with Insight Tracker, and they've all gone up oh. since we moved to sea level. So I'm Hopeful that I do get some of that sea level boost in fitness going from Boulder to California. Is there, I'm sure there have been studies of what like percentage boost in fitness there is in performance. Has that been studied that you know of? I'm sure it has. I can't recall the like direct numbers off the top of my head, but I know a usual estimation is about like depending on like how your altitude response is, if your iron's improved. And then what the conditions are at sea level, if it's humid or not, it's like about a like eight to 14 second improvement per mile. That's huge. Which is, yeah. And I've heard people say the same thing up here that they saw about an eight to 10 second improvement going from Boulder to CIM, just as long as it's not humid because you don't train in any real humidity up here. You'll be like, oh my God, it's so humid today. And it's 60% humidity. (laughs) So like if you encounter conditions like that at sea level, it can actually be quite tough because you're not used to them living up here. You're used to very dry air with very low air resistance. Yeah. I haven't even looked to see what the weather typically is like in the Sacramento area, like 40s, 50s, probably. Yeah. Both years I ran it was like starting in the 40s, finishing in the 50s. And like, it didn't feel humid then, but I lived in Seattle, which is quite humid. So I would say probably like moderate humidity, like not oppressive humidity. That's good. We don't want oppressive. That would not be good. Okay. So let's dive into predicting marathon times. I wanted to talk to you about this because you have such a great like knowledge base and just sense of how to predict somebody's performance. And a lot of people think that, okay, I will just pick a goal time. I'm going to, I picked my marathon and I'm going to pick a time. I'm going to try to run sub four and I'm going to train for that. And that is unfortunately not typically the way it works unless like you're actually basing that fitness time off of like previous training cycles. So can we first open up just sort of talking about why that's kind of like the backwards way of doing it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, picking an arbitrary goal time is a sort of reverse engineering that doesn't work in training because you can't, you're not like this robot who you can input, I want to run a nine minute mile pace, which is what roughly you would want for a sub four hour marathon, and say, I want to run a nine minute pace, so I'm just going to make my body run that. Unfortunately, training doesn't work that way. If it did, people would probably be a lot faster and someone (laughs) would have broken two or something, or 
officially broken too. I know it's been yeah. broken unofficially. <laughs> so a lot of times people see these numbers and they're nice round numbers or there's some sort of excitement around them, like, oh, breaking four seems like a big barrier. But you just can't program a number into your body. It's all dependent upon where your current fitness is, where your aerobic capacity is, all the sort of central, meaning like cardiopulmonary and peripheral adaptations, meaning how well your body takes oxygen from your blood and uses them in the muscles is it's how well your body can tolerate being on your feet and having repeated muscle contractions for that long. So you can sometimes see some people who maybe their 5k time would even predict a four hour marathon, but if they don't train enough, it's not going to happen. And I see a lot of runners get these like times in their head, like, oh, sub four, but then they actually set themselves up for a worse race by trying to hit it and force their bodies to hit it. And then they overtrain or bonk than if they just trained from where their fitness was and focused on making improvements from where they were, which is never as exciting or of a glamorous thing to say on social media compared to being like, oh, BQ or bust. Uh But you have to build from where your body is. You can't reverse engineer fitness based on a time that you want to hit. And so for someone who doesn't have a running coach to do that for them, how do they know? Like, Because a lot of times like you pick the goal rate or the goal time and you kind of use that information to inform your paces for your workouts. But if you're training from where you are, how do you know then what your paces are? I guess you do it by your rate of perceived effort. Yeah, that's one way to do it. So there's multiple ways you can do it. One is using an RPE scale rate of perceived exertion, which does require a lot of calibration. And I think that can be really useful for runners who have calibrated it. But for sometimes first time marathoners, it's difficult because you don't know what to expect. You don't know exactly how a marathon is going to feel. And you might feel really good holding a certain pace for two hours, but then when it comes to five hours, it's not sustainable. So that can be a really good scale for a runner who's calibrated it. Other ways to think about, you know, you can always take something like a recent race time, 5k, 10k, half marathon, and you can usually put them into calculators. Now those calculators always estimate based on people who train pretty high mileage. It's using a lot of data from sample sets of like elite, sub-elite runners. So usually you have to add like five to 10 minutes depending on your experience, but can still, if you know to add that five to 10 minutes, give you a good ballpark. Another very rough estimate, never quite right, but can kind of help put you in a ballpark or set expectations is to take your half marathon time, double it and add 10 to 20 minutes. That can kind of just help calibrate. If you run a 205 marathon, you're not going to go sub four in your marathon within one season, most likely. So there's all those different ways to think about it. I think another easy way to think about it is what if it's your first one and you RPE doesn't quite work and maybe you don't have races to compare against are what are your long runs like? Like what can you actually sustain when you go out there and do 16 or 20 miles? And that might still take some calibration, but it can kind of give all these pieces in the puzzle. Okay. So you've started to touch on the calculators. Let's start there because there are several ways that you can try to predict your marathon time. And we'll get to those, including like when is the best time in the training cycle? Because obviously if you're like still in base phase, it's not very wise to be like, yeah, you know, I'm going to go sub three when you have no idea, you know, how your cycle is really going to go. Okay. So let's, there are a lot of calculators out there. Let's start with Jack Daniels VDOT. Yeah. So Jack Daniels VDOT is one of those ones that's really been designed off of a lot of high volume runners. So it can be a really good tool, but you have to kind of read it, interpret it through that lens. But this is designed on people running like 70 plus miles per week. So for someone running a marathon on, you know, 50-ish miles per week, 35-ish miles per week, et cetera, you're going to have to add some time to what it calculates to kind of just adjust for that accordingly. So a lot of times the VDOT calculator will probably estimate like... 15 to 20 seconds per mile slower than your half marathon pace or threshold pace, depending. And I usually find for most people, it helps to add about, if they're fairly well-trained, add like four to seven minutes to what the Daniels calculator says. If they're a lower volume runner or this is their first one, maybe add up to 10 minutes to what it says. And remember, like these are all just calculators that are estimating. They're not exact predictions. I think it's really easy to look at that and be like, oh, it said I was going to run a 32413 and I added 4 minutes to that so I'm going to run a 32813 
it's just kind of helping you calibrate your expectations and maybe calibrate some paces for training. But don't look at that and be like, oh, it told me I'm going to run this exact number. So that's exactly where it is. Read it in context of your training. Plus all the different variables that can be thrown Mm -hmm. at you on marathon day. So if you do run, if you are a higher volume runner, so you are running around that 70 miles, is it or more a week? Is, Is the calculator then more accurate for you? Generally, it would be more accurate, but still, it sometimes is still like overly eager to estimate a really fast time. But I would say you'd probably be a little bit closer, like right at, I've seen some runners hit right at what their VDOT calculator assesses, but usually that happens if they are really in tune with what their marathon pace is. And we've still set that pace off of training, not off the calculator. And then if it's like a flat course, very ideal marathon temperatures in the 40s or 50s. So I think the best example is like if you're going to run the Indianapolis Marathon that and you're a high volume runner, that VDOT calculator can be in a good ballpark. If you are going to run Boston or New York City, you still might need to account for the hills. Same if you're running any hot weather marathon. And there seems to be a variation too with like what race time or split that you put in there. And obviously like the closer to a marathon time, your race or a marathon distance, your races, it's going to be more accurate. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. Especially like, I feel like using races that are at or below your critical speed, lactate threshold, however we want to define that. So like for most runners taking a 10K or longer, will give them a more accurate result than taking like a mile or a 5K just because those shorter distances have more anaerobic contribution. And that's when you're getting into differences of muscle fiber typology. Like you can have someone who really excels in the marathon and once they get into anything above their critical speed, they aren't as fast as equivalent race times would predict. So they might not actually do, their estimation using a 5K might actually estimate off. Some people are better at the 5K mile. They have higher fast twitch muscle recruitment. And for them, their marathon might actually be a little bit slower than estimated, even with all the other paddings of calculations added in. So the closer, you know, if you can take a 10K, half marathon, et cetera, use that versus a mile or a 5K. Yeah, it's interesting. I ran mile repeats this morning. And so I used my last mile repeat that I did, which was close to max effort to see what it would say about my marathon and predicted marathon time. And it was like a five minute difference, five minutes slower than based off of what my most recent half marathon time was, which I was surprised that it was that big of a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Like I see that all the time. And like, I'm one who I do better at the longer distances. And I think once I put in my 5k time and it was like, 10 minutes slower than I ran my marathon. And I was like, no, no, no. I mean, granted, my 5K PR is old and it was on a really hilly course, but like you still have to, it's better. And if you get slower, the longer you go, you need to account for that. So I I usually will try to use someone's half marathon time or 10K time if we're using the calculators to inform our race goals. Before we move on to other calculators, how accurate is VDOT? for shorter distances then because the marathon obviously we have running for that distance like there are so many variables that like you know fatigue and stomach issues etc that you have to factor in so one would assume then for the shorter distances it's going to be more accurate it does tend to be i mean i think it's important to still view that it is a like estimation not an exact input output but generally i do find that tends to be fairly like close for things like 5k to 10k conversion if the athlete is well trained and like racing it properly tapered the v dot does kind of fall apart if you're looking at something like i'm jumping into this 10k in base phase or to you know assess my fitness or i'm doing a tune-up race with tons of fatigue in my legs so i think it always helps to kind of view it as like these are your peak potentials not what every single 5K or 10K you're going to race. That's an excellent point. Okay. So what are some other popular calculators? Yeah. So there's the McMillan mm-hmm. calculator, which that one I find, I don't know exactly why it seems to be a little off. But I find that one to be a little less accurate for 
things. It also tells people to run their easy paces like way too fast. Interesting. But that one I find tends to maybe be a little too fast in the marathon. So again, if you're using that one, you'd want to add maybe like five to seven minutes, five to eight, depending on it. I quite haven't played around with that one as much just because of some that one is like you put in your goal time also. So people can kind of manipulate their calculator relations around on that based on the goal time they want to run. So that's not always helpful. There is the Rigel calculator, which I think is the one that like runner's world uses. That one tends to fall roughly around what the VDOT will okay. estimate also. Then there's the very recent slate.com calculator, which I believe is it's an attempt to make a calculator out of the Vickers formula, which the Vickers was a study kind of looking at like statistics of marathon times, and they tried to make a calculator out of it. That one actually a lot of times will estimate too slow for moderate mileage runners. So people who are in that like 40 to 55, 60 mileage range, it will usually tell them that they're going to run much slower because it's using mileage and race time. So it's like, it'll take your race time and build an equivalent based off of statistics and then adjust it based on mileage. But it's not always this input output because it will tell you like, oh, if you ran a 205 half marathon, but then you went and you trained 70 miles a week, Mm -hmm. you'll run something much faster. Really someone who's a 205 half marathoner should not be running 70 70 miles miles a week. A lot of time on their feet. So that one, I think sometimes estimates up to like 20 minutes slower than the VDOT one, which that can be good for tampering expectations. It's always kind of better to set slower goals, but I find a lot of runners kind of fall a little bit faster than their slate.com one does if they are well-fueled, well-trained, and good at pacing themselves in the marathon. So these calculators can just give this really wide array, and it can be helpful for kind of giving yourself a range, tampering your expectations in both ends, but none is going to be this perfect thing. Like I think an easy example is I took my time from the last marathon I ran, the half marathon I ran right before that. I ran a 329 at CIM that year. VDOT told me I was going to run a 324. Rigel told me I was going to run a 324. Slate said it was going to be a 345. Oh, wow. So you can see like the big range that these calculators can give. Real life again was 329. So they're getting their they're just kind of giving you parameters, not a perfect estimate. It would be amazing if a calculator existed in which you could put in several different times, plus maybe your training volume, and give you a prediction. The Slate one does allow that. I think where it fails is it doesn't take into account the training volume you did to get those other race times. Like, you know, you could run the half I did was like a 138. You could run a 138 off of 40 something miles a week, which is what I did. Or you could run it off of 60 something miles a week. And those are very different for predicting it into the marathon. So I think if there was a calculator that somehow took the training volume you did for the other races to kind of establish a baseline response, then look at all your different races, then look at the marathon, that might help also. But it's all very complicated to get these statistical predictions when there also are so many individual variances in oh, response. Yeah. Like some people respond super well to volume. There's been some studies even that some people respond poorly to volume. So mm-hmm. it's just really difficult to use these calculators to get a perfect estimation. Oh, yeah. But in general, the more well-trained you are, the probably volume that's you know more than 40 miles a week, like the more accurate these yes. will be. And so you typically use VDOT. Is that correct? Yeah. I tend to use VDOT and then just add those however many minutes based on the runner and the course they're knowing. But I always tamper it with what I'm seeing in their training log because that is giving me the best indication of their response to training, their adaptation, their fatigue resistance. Usually I encourage my runners to do marathon pace runs on similar terrain to their race. So that's helping gauge that. So always tamper it with what am I seeing in your workouts? Okay. So now let's, that's a perfect pivot to workouts. What workouts can you look at to inform what you think your marathon time will be? Yeah. So I'm going to put it down the parameter for this next discussion that when I'm talking about a lot of these marathon pace workouts, I'll be talking about it for runners probably finishing 4.15 and faster. Once we get to like four and a half hours, five hours, five and a half, six, your marathon pace is going to have a lot of overlap with your easy pace. When we talk about marathon pace, it's not 
always this reverse engineered X minutes per mile faster than your easy pace. It's about the pace you can sustain for a certain duration. And so for runners, you know, under four hours, they can generally sustain something faster than they would in easy runs. Once you're out there for five hours, that's just a really long time. And it's pretty much sustaining just the pace you can. But for runners for whom marathon pace is different than their easy pace, so again, these usually four, 4.15 and faster workouts around a moderate effort are a good indication. If we look at a lot of training theory in the zone, the three zone model, which is different than the five zone model that people use for heart rate and stuff, the training theory is all based on the three zone model. Zone one is easy. Zone two is moderate to mod hard under either lactate threshold or critical speed, depending on who you want to talk to, but roughly under like hour-ish pace, maybe up to 45-minute-ish pace, and then hard. So if we look at workouts in that moderate zone, those are going to be good indicators of where your marathon fitness is because they're in that roughly same physiological ballpark of moderate intensity. So that includes threshold runs around our race effort, maybe slightly slower, and marathon effort runs or marathon pace, which will feel still aerobic, but moderate, a little bit steadier, more effort than an easy run. I use both in marathon training just to really develop fatigue resistance, increase lactate clearance, etc. And so like you can look at those workouts and kind of begin together. I think especially the marathon pace workouts will give the best indication because you're practicing running at that moderate sustainable effort. It's going to really give you good feedback on what can I realistically sustain for a long period of time. Some of my favorite marathon pace workouts are usually big chunks of continuous running or broken up with slight intervals. So things like four, three, two, one miles at marathon pace in a long run. I like to have some runners do about eight to 10 miles continuous at marathon pace a few weeks out from a race because that can really give a good indication. What can you sustain for a long time at a moderate intensity without fatiguing? So, okay. For someone, they're looking at these workouts, how, and obviously like, okay, so you're able to hit the marathon pace workouts in your long run. Like that's a pretty good sign that that is a a right match for you in pacing. But how do you first determine what that potential marathon pace is? Like, how do you use these threshold type workouts to then, do you plug them into the VDOT calculator and then you use that to inform what you think the marathon pace would be and then you do the workout and you see how you're able to handle it? I usually take one of two directions for my athletes. One is I have them do those. If they have good calibration of their effort and good experience, we do those marathon pace workouts by effort to start with. So that's, you know, if they're using an RPE scale, usually about an RPE starting at five, maybe building up to six will frame it as like truly moderate, like maybe it's not super conversational, like an easy run, but you can still get out a couple sentences without having to gasp for breath. So you still aerobic, still comfortable. And I think that gives a really good indication for a lot of people. And that way they're not forcing a pace and trying to be like, oh, well, if I just push a little harder, I can get five seconds per mile faster. Sometimes I even have them do it without looking at their watch or looking at their watch too much because that really gives an idea of like where their aerobic threshold is, roughly estimating marathon effort, give or take. Other times for some runners who might need guardrails put into their workouts to keep them from going too fast, even focusing on effort. A lot of times I'll take those threshold runs they've done before and add, depending on where I think their marathon fitness will fall at about 25 to 30 seconds per mile to their threshold and see how that feels. I found that just there's nothing other than an observation from a large pool of data that's given me that number. It's again, a little slower than the VDOT would estimate based on threshold, but I've just seen that that kind of connects for a lot of runners, keeping in mind a lot of these marathoners I'm talking about here are in about the range of three hours to four hours when I'm using that as their guide. So the best would be to go run a 10K and then add 20 to 30 seconds? Yeah, roughly. Like, it depends on how fast their 10K is. Like, if their 10K is closer to critical speed, might be adding, like, 45 seconds. Because for some, 10K will fall above their threshold. Because if they do the 10K in, like, 40 minutes, which a lot of these runners will, it's going to be a little faster than their threshold. But, like, still, it gives a good idea. One workout I find that is really great is, like, 3 by 10 minutes at threshold. 30 minutes at threshold, 
all those ones that kind of push the upper end of threshold and really rely on the ability to control your pacing and then kind of add to that. I know I bugged you about this about a month ago where I had a pickup at the end of a long run. It was a 20 miler and I had a four mile pickup to, I guess might be my, what we're hoping my marathon pace is, but I didn't hit it. I was like five seconds off and I was not happy about it, but I feel like the pickups at the end of a long run are, well, A, they're a great workout, but B, they're also kind of a good predictor because you're running you're running on fatigued legs. And so that's like kind of predicting how you're going to feel running 26.2 on race day. What What's your assessment? Yes. I have kind of two like ways I do marathon workouts that I kind of have different rationale behind. So those Pickups at the end are really good stimulus for fatigue resistance, which is an important factor in the marathon. And it's really difficult to quantify fatigue resistance in training. But generally, like if a mar- an athlete can pick up at the end of the run and hold marathon pace without their effort going into lactate threshold, that's a good sign. If you notice like your effort is also going into that threshold zone, maybe you need to tamper your goals. However, the issue that some runners face is that their running economy deteriorates at the end of long runs. And so they can be pretty tired. Their form can be pretty poor. They might lose some energy from that. And so sometimes I like to put marathon pace in the middle of a long run or at the start when they have really good biomechanics. And that can, especially for like bigger chunks of marathon pace, that can give a good estimation because they'll still have a lot of fatigue coming from the end of a week of 50-ish, 60-ish miles. So their legs aren't super fresh, but their biomechanics will be good. They won't have like a lot of glycogen depletion yet, although I always encourage my runners to feel well to kind of mitigate any of that. But that can work really, really well. I've seen, especially those workouts create a positive feedback cycle for the athlete where they're like, they look at this workout and it has this huge chunk of marathon pace. Like I like giving big marathon pace workouts and they're like, oh my God, coach wants me to do like 10 miles total at marathon pace. But we start out without a ton of fatigue. They get a little bit more fatigued as that goes because it's such a big chunk, but overall creates a more positive feedback cycle than sometimes putting it all at the end, asking them to do that when they're pretty tired. And those workouts can have confidence building and like I'm a big fan of progression runs, but I like to use a couple different ways to manipulate it in workouts to really assess where the athlete is and to really build their confidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely knocked my confidence down a little, but then I've done, you know, like steady state for 10 Mm -hmm. miles and it's been fine, you know, like, so that's, it is quite the difference, at least for me personally, where the pickups are. Okay. So what about specific workouts like the Yasso 800s? And you're giving like a little smirk. (laughs) I mean, those ones I think are just maybe at one point there was a random correlation for a few people and they extrapolated that, but there's no research supporting it. And quite honestly, like Yasso 800s are working usually well above your critical speed. So they're working closer to like VO2 max, even for some marathoners. And it's just not a correlation. Like sometimes you'll see some runners who, yeah, can knock those out great. But I've seen a lot of faster Twitch runners knock out an awesome set of Yasso 800s. And it is way too overzealous for what their marathon and what it, actually be. How does it work again? So you run an 800 like as fast as you can and then... Yeah, and then you just do that 10 times in a row, I think, or you build up to 10 times in a row. And I think you rest an equal amount of time in between. So it's it's completely different energy systems yeah. than you're using in a marathon. And it's just, I think it was once upon a time some people saw a correlation for some people. And maybe some people continue to see correlations, but I don't love 800s that hard in marathon training as it is. It's a lot to ask for someone who you're trying to develop aerobically. And I think too much anaerobic work can backfire on a marathoner. So lots of reasons that those maybe aren't the best. There's also like different calculations or equations, I should say, where like you run a mile as fast as you can, and then you take the time in seconds and multiply it by 1.3. And that's your marathon time. Have you heard of that at all? I think I have. And again, it's one of those (laughs) <laughs> such a completely different energy system that 
like, again, maybe it worked for some people, but it's not, it's not a great estimator. It's definitely not superior to using marathon pace workouts because you're working. I mean, when you run a mile, especially if you're running a mile faster than six minutes, you have so much anaerobic contribution that it's not going to reflect your running economy, your aerobic development, your fatigue resistance, all these things that are major determinants of marathon performance. Okay. What about the Garmin race predictor? I wish that was right. (laughs) I know. Wouldn't that be amazing? So for those who may not have a Garmin, the newer models have a race predictor based on your workouts that, and based on like your, what they say your VO2 max is, right? And it's not, it's, I mean, I've talked to people who say like it totally overestimates and some people who say that it's really underestimates. And I mean, basically it's really on, well, your training volume and your heart rate. Yeah. I mean, it's throwing a lot of darts at a board because they're trying to estimate your VO2 max. So your maximum oxygen uptake from heart rate, but they don't really use anything to very narrow in your individual heart rate. So you already have a large standard deviation using age-based formulas for heart rate. Then you're having wrist, optical wrist monitors, which have a lot of margin of error, especially like a lot of runners don't put them on correctly to measure their heart rate best on the wrist. I know I certainly don't because it's actually kind of uncomfortable. So it's like using all these things that aren't reliable metrics and trying to estimate based on heart rate without using anything like your lactate threshold heart rate. So it's just kind of darts at the board. I would take it with a grain of salt. I actually tell some of my runners to turn that stuff off because I've seen it tell people who are four-hour marathoners that they could run a 3.30. And it messes with your head when you get weird information like that. Like you begin to think, am I doing something wrong? Am I not good enough? Like you don't need a watch destroying your confidence near a race. Oh, totally. I have finally learned to tune it out because I was getting so frustrated when I'd come back from a like a great run and it would demote yeah. my training status and my VO2. Like, and it does not take into yeah. effect like so many different variables. Something that's really interesting, I use a Coros and they have you test and input your lactate threshold heart rate. And they use that in their formulas. And again, their formulas are shot in the dark. But I do find sometimes that those ones, are less way out there because of the proxies they're using that lactate threshold heart rate but again it's still way way out there i mean it thinks for me it's like oh you could go run this time and i'm like maybe at sea level but not at high altitude so but it's still like they're all just algorithms that are estimating it's not going to replace your ability to assess your training or coach's ability to do so So what about the athletes, I know we've touched on this a little bit, that do not do any workouts and their training is mostly just easy miles or all easy miles. Do they use their long run pace to then inform what their marathon time would be or is there any variation? I mean, I think it's good to use your long run pace. If you're running mostly easy miles, if this is your first marathon, use your long run pace. There are some exceptions. Like there, I have had a few people who are aerobically well-developed, they put in a good volume of training, and they have a lot of background racing, half marathons and stuff, their cases might be different. But for an overwhelming majority of first-time marathoners, especially if they're doing just easy runs, or this is their first time going beyond the half marathon in a race, a marathon is a really far distance. You're going into uncharted territory for yourself, and you don't want to wrap yourself up in this concept of a goal time. and start out too fast and hit the wall. So think of the marathon the first time around, or if you're just doing easy runs and focused on finishing, use your long runs as a good metric. At the very worst, you start a little too slow and can pick it up at the end. Best case, you save yourself from walking. And either of those are better scenarios. You know, finishing with something in the tank is better than bonking yourself out within the first eight miles because you got in your head, oh, easy run, my easy runs are this. And everyone on Instagram says that your marathon pace is one to two minutes per mile faster than your easy run. So I decided my marathon pace is a 10 minute mile when I'm doing all my long runs at a 12. It doesn't work that way. Like 
let yourself cover the distance. It's hard enough to cover the it distance. It is so long. I know I was thinking that when I, you know, I ran my first race in three years, my half marathon a couple weeks ago. And it was just like the whole time I was like, I am so glad this is just a half marathon, like 26.2 miles. Oh my goodness. Okay. So let's, let's talk about that just a little bit. What a lot of people see on Instagram as far as, okay, you can use your long run pace. You can subtract a minute per like from your easy pace and that's your marathon pace. How does that, what's the breakdown of that? And who does that actually work for? If anyone? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, there's a lot of issue trying to engineer your marathon pace from your easy pace because you can see some of like some really fast runners who say have their easy, who have their marathon paces in the 630 range might go actually really quite slow on their easy days because they're doing such high volume. You know, I think of some people I follow on Strava who are like in the 250s for their marathon and they run some of their easy runs at 930. That doesn't mean that everyone's running their easy runs at the 930 is going to run their marathon in the 250s. A lot of runners who are really good at the marathon take a lot of their easy runs deliberately slow. So it becomes like an issue when you try to think, oh, my easy runs are all this, so let me figure out my marathon pace. First, even if we use that one to two minutes per mile difference between marathon pace and easy pace for a well-trained runner, that's a big bandwidth. Like one to two minutes per mile yeah. is already a big bandwidth as you as it is. Second, that's more so a guideline to slow down on your easy runs. It's not a guideline of, oh, I can set my marathon pace from my easy runs. Like how easy are you taking your easy runs? What's your heart rate on them? Are you in zone one? of five, zone two, what's your training volume? It's because even like easy runs for a 45 mile per week marathoner are going to be slightly faster than easy run, slightly faster relatively than easy runs for a 80 mile per week marathoner because so much more time on your feet, so much more fatigue. So just throw that out. <laughs> yeah, don't. just don't reverse engineer any of your, of your training. Like yeah. Your, yeah, your easy pace is just its own thing. And yeah, I mean, I know that we've talked a lot on the podcast about basically like your easy pace. It's not a pace. It's a feeling. It's just yeah, it's whatever feels comfortable for you that day. Okay. So when is the best time in a training cycle to even think about what your goal time should be? I, <laughs> so for myself, yeah. three weeks out maybe. Or taper. For my runners, yeah, who start chomping at the bill early, we might start looking at it six weeks out but like even when you're like say the duration you and I are out at the time of this recording from CIM or what like eight weeks out or something seven I don't know but like when you're still got a couple more months to put in training you're still going to have a lot of adaptation happening Ooh, I like that recovering well. <laughs> yeah so it's like where you are right now is not where you're going to be and where you are eight weeks out from your marathon is not where you're going to be in your marathon. And if you're reaching peak fitness eight weeks out from the marathon, you should actually probably be worried. You're probably overtraining. So I always assess pretty close to the race, like those big peak workouts that we do right around peak week into the taper to use that because at that point, fitness is pretty much built mm -hmm. and you're not going to be gaining a lot more in those last two weeks. So that, and then once, especially you begin to remove mileage a bit in the taper, you can really see where fitness is without the mask of fatigue. So that's why, and usually by the time, like my more competitive marathoners get to two weeks out from the marathon, we have done some big marathon pace workouts that should give us a really good idea. Again, a lot of them see 10 miles at marathon pace and those workouts don't lie here. <laughs> <laughs> but then you just recover really hard. So yeah, like in the taper, like the week, uh, the, you know, a few days before your marathon, like the last little workout you do to maintain your neuromuscular fitness, are there any workouts in particular you like to kind of still get an assessment of where they're at and then also build that confidence that, okay, this is your marathon pace and it feels comfortable and you can do this. Yeah. So usually, you know, in the taper, I'll have them do some still fairly big marathon workouts. But once we're a week out from the race, the last pre-race workout is usually something little like 20, 25 minutes at marathon pace, three-ish miles, whatever, just to kind of reiterate control and feeling of what marathon pace feels like. And you'll feel pretty good by then. So you'll kind of actually teach, remind yourself how to control marathon pace because 
when you get to the marathon, marathon pace will feel really freaking easy at the start, or at least it should. The first 10 miles should be like an aerobic cakewalk. So like in that final pre-race workout, it just reiterates to you that, oh, marathon pace is going to feel really, really easy at the start of the race. And I need to stay in control. Yes. Yes. Because 26.2 is a very long way. It's a very, uh, yeah, it, that's like a mistake I almost always make where it's like, oh my gosh, I feel so good. And then you forget that you have hours of doing that ahead of you. Last thing I want to ask you about. So w- we have talked about like some of the like negative variables that can impact race day as far as weather or hills or just, you know, fatigue, you don't have the fatigue tolerance that you thought or cramping stomach stuff, but there are also like positive influences that you can't really necessarily predict. Like you, like race day, you have the adrenaline, you're on tapered, you're tapered, you have fresh legs. Like those are also things that will help carry you through on race day. I feel like it kind of, I mean, you can't really quantify it, but that's not something like we should not Yeah, we think don't want to dismiss that. Yeah, because like a lot of runners will go into the well when they're in a race and there's people around them and their competitive spirit is out. And you can't always go to that well on your own. You know, that's part of why when we were in like COVID and people were running time trials, they weren't these big breakthroughs that we saw then when people got out of COVID and were racing again. Like the racing environment pushes you and that can help in being like how you might wonder in training like, okay, I did marathon pace for 10 miles. That felt good enough. How am I going to do it for 26? The race environment. You also don't want to neglect the importance of good race day nutrition. So the carb load for about two and a half to three days leading up and making sure that's an actual carb load. It's the appropriate protocol, being well hydrated and then good in-race nutrition. There's a lot of research that has shown that like taking in 60 grams of carbs per hour in your marathons. I think it was like one study, Hansen 2014 or something. It was... People finished on average minutes, finished time faster when they took in enough carbs and followed a fueling strategy than when they just kind of winged it. Oh, yeah. That's a big chunk of time. The carb load really helps with that. So those nutrition variables are going to make a difference. And you want to go in with a solid nutrition plan because that's what's going to really help you shave off time in the race is having like if it always sounds really intimidating, like, oh, I don't want my stomach to hurt. Work on it in training, work on your gut training, but carbs are the spark that's going to fuel the fire of the marathon. Like you need that substrate. You're putting gas in your tank. No one's giving out medals at the end for running the marathon on the fewest carbs. (laughs) That is a great quote right there. Oh yeah. I mean, I, up until this point, like did not practice my fueling until like it was on race day where I was like, okay, I'll start taking these gels. And just in my training, it's amazing. Like I come back from my long run and I'm like, all right, let's go. I mean, you just feel through your training, like you feel much better throughout the run. And then afterwards you just have way more energy and you recover so much faster. Yeah. You recover so much faster so you can stack the bricks of training and adapt. For a lot of runners, they can train their gut to better tolerate it. And your carbohydrate oxidation rates actually increase with exposure to carbohydrate in training, meaning that you're just going to get more out of it (laughs) the more often you take it. A lot, there's a lot of stuff that's like the things that people try to do sometimes to improve fat oxidation can actually blunt carbohydrate oxidation, which is not what you want in the marathon. So just, I think it always helps people to frame it as like throughout all training, it's helping you get the most out of those carbs on race day. That's an interesting, because I mean, when we talk about gut training, we focus mostly on just like having your your stomach used to digesting while it, your body is working so hard to avoid stomach upset. But I didn't realize that it can also help with just like the processing and efficiency of using that fuel. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like it, it responds to exposure and training. And that's why I, I always have my marathoners keep practicing their marathon fueling, even in their taper runs. So like the week out, it's like go run 10 miles and take 60 grams of carbs per hour. And they're like, come again. But it pays off because your your gut stays trained. All those transporters keep working efficiently. And it's just like one last confidence builder. 
for Ooh, your fueling strategy. I'm going to do that. I wouldn't have thought to do that. Well, thanks. I've learned so much. I think our Thank listeners you. will learn so much. And we will have to make sure. I just made my flights for CIM yesterday, actually. So we're going to arrive on Thursday. When are you getting there? We're getting there Friday night because work <laughs> yeah. stuff for my husband. And then we're staying through Monday. But we made sure to book like the not economy seats where we have a little bit more leg room. So I'm hoping that flying out Friday and then taking a really easy Saturday. I mean, I used to fly in Saturday and race on Sunday and fly on Monday. So yeah, in just a few weeks, we're flying out. But we booked our flights a while ago because I'm like a semi-neurotic person with stuff like that. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, hopefully then we can see each other even after we're going to stay through Monday too. I was yeah. looking and I, the flights were not great to Knoxville. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, in the time, we did not have a good pick of times and it like it was looking like I would have to leave right after the race. And I was just like, I do oh, not no. want to do that. But we also don't want to no. be gone for so long, but it's such a far way. But we got some, we get in at like midnight yeah. or something. But and you're staying in like Folsom also, right? Yes. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. We're staying in Folsom. Okay. So, oh, that'll um, make it easier. Yeah. We'll, okay. we'll be able to see each other because I think we might even end up on like the same buses out so we can coordinate that. Oh, that's um, true. Yeah. It's, yeah. There's a bus that leaves from the whole Whole Foods in Folsom. Oh, okay. Well, good to know. I didn't know that. I yeah. haven't done my recon yet. So <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, check your email because there is like there was something that came out about the buses and bus and surveys. So yes, I did fill out the yeah. survey, okay. but I didn't like file away the information. So <laughs> yeah. Again, I'm like neurotic about these things. So. <laughs> like anyone who's listening is like probably like she needs to dial it down 10 notches. Oh no, okay. no, no. That's good. I get neurotic, but not until like, I'm an anti-procrastinator, but with stuff like that, I don't really start getting neurotic until like it's the week of and it's on a need to know basis. So, but anyways, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to seeing you, you in the, yeah. like a month and a half. Yeah. And I hope, I really look forward to us finally being able to meet in person. And I hope training continues to go smoothly. Thank you. The next two weeks. And same to you too. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. Bye. Thank you all for listening to the Passionate Runner podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed having this conversation. You can find the full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any of the resources that we talked about at runnerclick.com slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And we would love it if you leave a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash leadpassionaterunner. We'll read these out on future episodes. Talk to you next time.